That's a 17-year-old on the Sunset Strip in West Hollywood. Everybody got the hair real long. It looks real nice, you know. It used to be the girls, they like you that way and everything. And that's a New York 16-year-old fighting essentially the same battle. I'm Bill Ryan, and this is The Cool Rebellion. We'll take a look at that bewildering and often bewildered creature, the teenager, the high school teenager. Not the underprivileged kid, not the disadvantaged, not the juvenile delinquent, not the school dropout. Tonight, we'll examine the latest skirmish in the oldest war, the war between the generations. We'll take a look at the new tactics and the new issues picked up by the current generation, the cool generation. Cool, that's a slang word with many meanings. In the first place, it's a good word. It can mean detached or uninvolved. It can mean in or popular. It can mean stylishly smart. And it's a fading word as well. Nowadays, the word cool is being replaced by the word tough. And <laughs> don't ask me why. But as expected of adults, we'll stay slightly out of style, slightly uncool, and stick with the word cool. So it's a cool rebellion. Not a rebellion, you say? Well, we sent reporter Robert Lazich to West Hollywood's Sunset Strip to find out. Now, the Strip is a stretch of Sunset Boulevard where nightclubs cater to the high school crowd, and as a consequence, the teenagers have pretty much taken over. On Friday and Saturday nights for months, the Strip has been awash with youngsters, to the point that the fancy restaurants and posh adult clubs were suffering. Grown-ups found the good meal or the entertainment just weren't worth the effort of bucking the teenage hordes. Consequently, there was pressure on the police to enforce the curfew, a 10 o'clock curfew on all youngsters under 18. The rebellion was on. The first few Saturday skirmishes were rough. A bus was dumped over and the police, sheriff's deputies and Los Angeles City police, bent their nightsticks over a few long haircuts. But then it got cool. Oh, the rebellion was still on, perhaps more forcefully than before, but differently. The kids had learned a new weapon, congregation. They thronged and sang and laughed, and they picked up adult support, even though some adults didn't dig their music. But if you go to college and march a thousand strong, the law doesn't care at all. It's only if you've done something wrong. As to why the police were there, the kids were clear. You'll just be walking along and they, they just harass you and, and question you all the time and they stop you wherever you're going and they keep checking your ID and they make you stop. The, they take a check into the police station which takes about a half an hour and they, it's just harassment. That, that's the main thing. Well, what, what would you like them to do? Oh, like, uh, look for the trouble instead of just stopping individuals and stuff like that on the street and trying to cause trouble, because this is what it's doing. I mean, something's going to happen. I don't blame them for going in there. But if they see individuals walking down the street, I can't see them busting them for just about nothing. Now, you say that uh, one of the purposes of the demonstration is to uh, change the 10 p.m. curfew. What's wrong with the 10 p.m. curfew? <laughs> nothing happens until 10 p.m. You know, where, where the, what are these kids going to do? They're going to... They're going to be out anyway, so they're going to go to private parties and stuff like that, and they may end up getting in more trouble in private parties than they do out here on the strip. And a girl had this to say. Well, nothing that the kids go to is over at 10. I mean, well, that's, you know, you go to a drive-in, say, and it's not over till midnight. The kids are going home walking, you know, and they get busted. Well, they've got all these clubs here that are open until midnight or so. And these kids, they come out after 10 and the cops are there waiting. They haven't even got a chance to explain themselves. But, of course, you've got people that just hang around for the fun of it, too. I mean, there's two sides to the story. Well, who is the rebellion against the protest? Not a rebellion. I'd say it's, it's a rebellion. It's sort of, the kids want to be recognized. They want... They're, I don't know, to me, I think they're sort of frustrated and they want to be recognized and they're taking it out in a curfew and in pol police brutality. But uh, they're correct, I think, in that this is a, oh, what's the word? I don't know. Um, they're, 
their cause is all right. They were sort of violent to begin with, like the first protest they had on November 12th when they uh, bounced a bus and uh, pulled a gas line on another but that bus. That wasn't the kids that originated the protest, the kids that started the bus. No, but it got out of hand. Okay, and you had all this violence, and you had the policemen moving in, and uh, then, of course, their cause was kind of uh, ruined because they, had, they destroyed all this public property. And so now they're doing this peacefully by having uh, peaceful protest marches up and from here to Wiscogogo back here again. And they're, they're becoming more organized. And so this is, I think it's all right now that they do something like this because they're not doing, they're going about it the right way. But the Sunset Strip riots are abnormal. The kids may have taken their cue from another West Coast institution, the Berkeley campus. They took direct and organized action. And even sociologists and psychologists disagree on whether they were right or wrong. One distinguished professor in the teenage corner is sociologist and author Edgar Friedenberg of the University of California at Davis. Dean Mel interviewed him in California, and the first question was, what motivates the kids to flock to the Sunset Strip? When you talk about motivation and seeking, you're already out of their vocabulary uh, because uh, one thing that they don't like about the prevailing adult society is it's what it regards as its rationality, which seems to them very irrational, but, well, yeah, I mean, we're seeking a peace in Vietnam, you know. I mean, the things that we aim for uh, in the long run bring out the worst in us, and that's when they distrust us most. They don't come there seeking anything. They come there because that's where the action is. Do you have any uh, ideas as to what brought this on? Why is this generation uh, so markedly different in its behavior patterns? The music is very, very important to understanding. This is the, the real clue, and the, the songs that are, are sung tell you much more than anything else about the kids. I was thinking of the name of this group in San Francisco, which is a very good one, and which more than anything else, I think, epitomizes anything I can think of, the attitude of the uh, kids toward the society. This is the group that calls itself the Grateful Dead. There is a similarity, <laughs> is there not, though, between what we have seen on the Sunset Strip, the scene in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco, the happenings, the uh, student uh, involvements on the Berkeley campus, they are yeah. all part and parcel of, a, of, a, of something that is uniquely young generation American. Yes, they are. Now, why? Why? And, and, and they are, they are, or are they, behaving differently than uh, previous generations have? Yes, they radically are different. behaving radically differently from previous generations. I think that the people who say that, after all, you have to remember we had a conflict of generations in when I was young, and it's really the same thing, are missing the boat entirely. It's hard to give a simple answer for it, although I think I can give a clear one. Uh, for one thing, I think it would be fair to say that my generation is at least 30% finkier than other leading generations, and there are reasons for that. We are more dishonest uh, and more repugnant, and certainly the war in Vietnam has a great deal to do with it at the present time, and the American people have not acted like that about anything since they did away with the Cherokee Indians, and that was quite a long time ago, after all, beyond any living generation remembering. So that, for one thing, you see, you have a collapse of moral models in the older generation. And the older generation makes this much worse by making moral noises when it, what it is really expressing is sexual anxieties, and that uh, that simply has nothing to do with morality one way or another in the kid's judgment uh, or in my judgment. I mean, you can be immoral sexually, uh, you can be immoral asexually <laughs> or non-sexually, but you can't be immoral sexually to a great many people at a time as you can with a, a squadron of military <laughs> aircraft. <laughs> and what happens when this generation uh, assumes the, the throne of power? this under-25 group? I don't know that they will. 
in the first place, they really don't like power. They hate it, I think. I mean, uh, there won't be so much power. I think the whole thing is going to become, in Marshall McLuhan's sense, much cooler. Uh, a form of anarchy? No, not a form of anarchy. Of course, this is, after all, assuming that our generation succeeds in preserving the society or not uh, involving it in a fatal conflict even that long. But if this is true, no, I think there will be new forms of leadership and a great deal more looseness about norms. I even, from people who know younger corporate executives better than I do, I know some of them, uh, you seem to find this even in the business leadership of the country to some extent. That is that the uh, the old authoritarian style is out, but the manipulative style is out too, and one settles for wider limits, less control, and if necessary, for less efficiency in, in the old-fashioned sense. Sociologist Edgar Friedenberg, who thinks teenagers won't take the reins of authority. But not everybody thinks all, or even most of the kids, resent authority or lack a need for it. One is school psychologist Arthur Kraft, who works in the upper middle class community of Ridgewood, New Jersey. Well, first, we reminded Dr. Kraft that when we went to school, Dr. Kraft and I, there were no school psychologists. So we asked him, why are you needed now? We are needed, we are called upon primarily because children in school are having trouble with the schoolwork. Secondarily, there are behavior problems and maybe uh, third, or lower on the list, are serious emotional problems. primary reason that we are used is that children are not doing as well as they can academically. Did we? I doubt it. How did we make it, if in fact we did? Well, we got through as best we can. Uh, this is not to say that many of us could not have been helped by a psychologist when we were in school. Can we take a look at the the outward manifestations of the teenager now, which seem to be the long hair and to us the extremes of dress, are the clothes that much more outlandish and therefore the children that much more outlandish? No, I don't believe they are. I think we had our fads um, a few years ago. The tight pants for the boys came in before that, um, I would say about four or five years ago, girls were teasing their hair to a point that was driving parents to distraction. And these fads seem to last uh, two or three years. I don't think they matter much what the fad is of the moment. Now it's long hair. And some of the boys' hair is so long that the boys with only moderately long hair are telling the ones with the real long hair that they should get a haircut. <laughs> I, uh, there is hope, then. There <laughs> well, it's... Uh, it's all a matter of conformity, really. Your hair is supposed to be so long and no longer, really, and if it gets down to the point where you can't see your shirt collar, then the medium-long hairs are somewhat embarrassed by it. Well, of course, aren't they also finding a conformity in extremity? Definitely. As, now, is this, is this normal? Did we do this? Did teenagers before us do this? I think we did things to belong, and the present teenagers are doing things to belong. The ones who do the most conforming and are sometimes the most conspicuous to the adult's eye are very often the ones who need the support of their peer group the most. They don't dare be different. If the group says, let's go to a movie, and a person who needs their approval doesn't want to go to that movie, he goes anyway. Mm -hmm. Whereas a more independent person says, no, I don't feel like going, and no, I don't feel like letting my hair grow so long or wearing pants so tight that I can't bend over. But this takes a certain type of confidence and maturity, which many teenagers don't develop. Uh, the, the teenagers, are they getting more demonstrative now in their business of being teenagers, uh, more extreme? I think there are outward signs of being more extreme, yes. Again, this is a kind of conformity. This is becoming the thing to do. How about the word tough? Why should that come into, into usage as uh, indicating the, the, the epitome? 
<laughs> if a thing is really good, it is tough. The new vocabulary, even though I'm in the high school, I, I, need a, I brush up on new vocabulary several times a year. Uh, tough has come in. Somebody told me a couple months ago, hey, that's A. A or ace, yeah. And somebody else was referring to, uh, a girl was referring to a boy she liked and said, he's boss. But to get back to why tough, um, I think it's, it's part of a pattern of um, saying, I could care, or I could care less. It is in style to have a kind of a tough front. That's the thing to do. You don't uh, crawl, you don't bellyache. You don't cry on anybody else's shoulder. So tough becomes good. That's my, it's really mm -hmm. a guess. That's my guess as to how it got to be such a big word. And perhaps boss would be the same thing, uh, approving yes. authority. Yes. Are they trying to tell us that they really approve us, their parents and, and their elders? I think it's uh, sort of a compromise because tough also has um, something of the meaning of cool and sharp. Mm -hmm. that pertain back in our day. Um, and yet I, uh, I think also I agree with you, that especially with the word boss, that when someone uh, takes control of them, that is a good thing, even though if you ask them this point blank, they would say, no, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. We've had enough of that. But secretly they're leaving notes for us, aren't they? It could be. Some students have told me quite openly that they wish their parents would crack down on them. Students who are having uh, academic trouble, and uh, many of them have told me, I wish my father would lay the law down or they'd really make me do the work. Now this is, uh, cannot always be taken at face value because sometimes I've said to the student, uh, would you like me to tell your parents that? Mm -hmm. In a few cases, they say yes. So if it's a student I know well, I say, why don't you tell your parents? But in one or two cases where I've known the parents, I've said, uh, well, it looks like maybe the stage is set for you to crack down. And then when the parent does crack down, there's only a 50-50 chance that that's what the student really wants. Mm -hmm. He may really straighten well, up and fly right. Well, when you're dealing with teenagers, mm -hmm. those are pretty good odds. Yes. Dr. Arthur Kraft, a high school psychologist. Teenagers, like the rest of us, sometimes find problems they can't solve by themselves, emotional problems. One person who helps them under these circumstances is Dr. Joseph Michelson, attending pediatrician and director of the Adolescent Clinic at Jewish Hospital of Brooklyn. We asked Dr. Michelson, what's the most frequent kind of emotional trouble a teenager gets into? Interpersonal relationships with his parents, with adults, as well as with his peers. What causes these troubles? Is it pressures from parents, for instance, or pressures from schoolwork? There is no one cause. There are many causes, and therefore you cannot single one out. But the pressures of adults are probably the most uh, important cause. Parents with the best of intentions, with only uh, a desire to improve their young people, to have them succeed as much as possible, those very pressures can produce the opposite effect. Well, how do you treat these things? Do you, do you treat the parent as well as the kids? I think that no adolescent can be adequately treated unless his parents are aware of the treatment that is being given him and unless his parents are counseled in how they can best manage uh, their adolescent and how their attitudes toward him might be changed. What about uh, sex problems? Are they a large part of adolescent problems? The sexual drive, which begins in early adolescence and wells up into great volume in uh, the latter part of adolescence, is probably one of the most important things that affect the adolescent. And this must be taken into consideration when treating any ailment of an adolescent. Physical or mental? Physical or mental. The sexual drive is responsible in many individuals for their concern about their identity. Am I going to be a full-grown male or female? Are the body structures that I have enough to make me a full woman or a full man. Those concerns 
can give a young person chronic headache, which has nothing to do with the head, but has to do with the fact that he is concerned about himself and who is he, what is he, where is he going. And the physician who treats this child must keep this in mind. Well, what are the, uh, the danger signals that a parent or a teacher might look for? I must tell you that these signals that you ask for are sometimes very obscure. And the most experienced uh, psychiatrist and physician and social worker and certainly parent might find it very difficult to be able to determine when an emotional disturbance began. It is true that uh, depressions occur in adolescence. Depression in an adult is indicated by his lack of interest in his environment, by his inability to do his job, and so on. The depression in the adolescent may be much more obscure. He might become very violent. His outbursts and his temper tantrums might be much greater, even though he is suffering from a depressed state. Certainly his schoolwork is one of the delicate indicators of how he is doing. A boy who had been doing adequate or better than adequate schoolwork, who suddenly fails a subject or two, uh, must have himself investigated as to why this is so. It may be just lack of interest. It may be uh, innate inability to perform at a higher level. But it also may be that his emotional condition is such that he is unable to perform. Well, we've had in previous interviews two different points of view rather forcefully put forward. One, that adolescents crave authority and limits, and the other, that they don't. I think both are true. They crave limitations. They will live by rules if they are convinced that the rules are fair. They love models, and the happiest adolescent is one who has his own parents as models of behavior. But they cannot stand, and this is more true of this generation than any others, they cannot stand sham, they cannot stand deception, and they cannot stand double standards. And many of us who have grown up in other generations have found this a, um, an expedient way of living. The adolescent who is told never to tell a lie and who he is his mother say when someone calls her, tell her I'm not home, finds it a little confusing. And this, his ideal, his parent, or the individual who should be his ideal, who lies for a minor matter like that, certainly has no right to tell him not to lie. Now, why do you say this generation rather than any other? I think this generation is somewhat different because we have made them different. We have opened up uh, many avenues of communication, such as this one. This type of program probably could not have been put on a generation ago. The uh, advertising media where the sexual aspect of everything you buy, whether it's uh, perfume or cigarettes or underwear or shoes, is emphasized in every uh, medium of communication. The uh, liberalization of discussion has opened up this generation's eyes and ears, and they are asking questions. The troubles that the adolescent causes are minor compared to the large number of adolescents who cause no trouble, but who are thinking, respectful, respectable people. I think that we have to look to our generation before we cast a, a finger on them. Dr. Joseph Michelson, a pediatrician. There are in this country some 25 million teenagers, and they spend about $18 billion a year. But that isn't all. They directly influence their parents to the tune of another $35 billion. For instance, they help select food, cars, clothes, books, and many other consumer items. As a consequence, manufacturers and merchants are interested in and fascinated by teenagers. They hire survey firms to find out whether their new soft drink or shoes will really catch on, whether the product is attractive to teenagers. One of those firms is Gilbert Marketing Group, headed by Mrs. Nancy Gilbert. She's an expert 
on how girls spend their babysitting wages and boys their lawn mowing fees, not to mention allowances, for parents give their kids an average allowance of about $6 a week. And so, how do they spend it? Well, Mrs. Gilbert says teenage girls buy one quarter of all the cosmetics sold. And the boys? Well, the boys spend most of their money on food. Mrs. Gilbert has teams of researchers on high school campuses all over the country. And she's also an expert on fads. Well, we asked her, how do teenage fads get started? Teenage fads usually are started from a hero worship. Well, who are the heroes today? Today, they're the rock and roll groups, mostly from England, the Birds, the Beatles, and the like. Do we get to blame the Beatles for long hair, as well as their style of music? Definitely. They came over here. Everybody uh, was shocked in the beginning, but uh, today the long hair is in. It's accepted even by the adults, although they don't... They don't like it, they accept it, and they, uh, the children wear it, or the teenagers wear it. The girls seem to like to have boyfriends with long hair rather than the old uh, Yale look. Well, how about girls' hairstyles? The boys like the long hair, so the girls wear it. Yeah, but it seems to just sort of hang. Well, of course it hangs. They get the ironing board out and they iron it. Literally. They use the iron and they iron it. Well, what are the, the current fads in girls' clothing? Well, the mini skirt, for one thing, which is even going up, 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 up. I don't know how far up it's going to end, but uh, we have a semi-mini now. And we have the paper dress. You've heard about that. I certainly hope they don't wear it when they're ironing their hair. And uh, it's still the long-slung hip-hugger pants and the wide belts. How long do fads last? Depending on how long they are left alone. As soon as the adult world hears about it or tries to join in, they'll drop it like a hot potato. Mrs. Nancy Gilbert, a surveyor of teenagers. One of the biggest fads among high school boys is the group. And nearly every high school in the country has its musical combo. Very amplified guitars, usually three of them, drums, and a portable electric organ. As to how they sound, well, they vary in quality, but they all have one thing in common. They're loud. Just in case you haven't heard a combo lately, here's a professional group that's attained hero status for a good many of the amateurs. It's called, why I don't know, the Jefferson Airplane. And it too is loud. We talk with the leader of a strictly high school group from northern New Jersey. His group is called, also for reasons I don't know, The Other Half, and his name is Skip Bojack. We wanted to know why he plays the music he does. We play the music we play because it, we're trying to convey to the audience, you know, what we feel. Well, what is it that you feel? Blues. That's why we do so much of it and we write all the stuff that we write has blues in it. Yeah, but most people when when they think of blues, they think of the older style of blues of 20 or 25 years ago. How is your music blues? Well, we're still using blues progressions, chord progressions and such and uh you know, the singer sings in a blues style, but we put a beat to it for dancing because the kids want to dance. What's your musical background? Well, before I started the other half, I was a drummer for six years with a group called The Dynamics. When the Beatles hit, I decided to take up the guitar because the drums were no longer a challenge. Well, is the guitar a challenge? Certainly is. Well, why? Why is it more of a challenge than the drums? Because you can't make music with drums. You can sit there and play a beat, but you can't make music with drums. With guitar, you know, you can express your feelings a lot more. Skip Bojack, teenage leader of a group called the other half. But not all the high school musicians play Skip Bojack's kind of music. For instance, in Los Angeles, there is 15-year-old Brian Whitcomb. He writes religious music, but in a modern vein. Here's his version of the Lord's Prayer. 
Robert Lazich asked Brian why he felt it necessary to swing the Lord's Prayer. Only reason it was necessary to overhaul the Lord's Prayer was because the old Lord's Prayer was uh, 400 years old, and uh, coming from an outside world into a church is like walking into the twilight zone because it's like going into uh, 300 years before from the outside world. You drive up in a car and you walk in and the priest is wearing the same vestments as he did 300 years ago and nothing has changed. Now with the ecumenical council and uh, this kind of thing, you know, with all the changes being made, I think that it's only fitting that the music be changed right along with it. Do you think that the church is out of tune with the current times? Uh, I think that it could be more in tune. I think it's going to be pretty quick. I hope it will be. <laughs> Does your music, as you write it, have any message uh, no message outwardly. It's just that uh, I think this kind of music will appeal to people today. It's modern music, and uh, I hope that they like it, and I hope that they'll go to church because uh, the music in church is supposed to be inspiring, and I think this is inspiring enough. Who is your message directed to? Is it directed to the youth today, you mean? Uh, I think so, because it's uh, it's my generation. You know, I'm, I'm just as... Uh, young as all my friends and everything, and if, if they don't like it, uh, you know, I, I really don't know who's going to. You want them to go to church, do you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, a lot of my friends just don't go to church uh, because it's a complete drag. They say, what do they go for? They go and they watch somebody, and they don't know what any of it means unless they've attended a parochial school or something like that, and uh, they just don't know. Uh, the music won't help it much, but since the changes are being made, it's just fitting that the music be changed, I think, right along with all this. Do you feel yourself a part of the current revolution that seems to be going on among teenagers? Uh, you mean with the long hair and everything? Uh, I, I never even thought of it as a revolution. I'm told that today the youth uh, speaks more outwardly and that they uh, don't like phoniness of any kind and that kind of stuff. Well, I, I'm, I go along with them there. I don't like any kind of phoniness. And, uh, that kind of thing. I'm, I mean, I'm not a, I don't go down to sunset every night and, you know, riot and everything, but uh, I just, you know, I just go, just have fun like any other kid, you know, fool around as much as anybody else, but I don't think I'm rebellious or anything. Do you feel that uh, since you are overhauling things like the Lord's Prayer that you might have a revolution of your own going? I, I don't think that I'd mind at all if I did, because if I got, uh, I think, just some kids to go back to church, you know, if it's just one person, I'd, I'd, feel, I'd feel pretty good about it. But you don't feel that you're revolting, for example, against the church? Oh, no, no. I think that this is going right along with uh, the church today uh, because of uh, all the changes. This, the music should change right along with it, I think. Hearing music from, uh, well, Bach and Beethoven, which I have nothing against. They were the most fantastic musicians, you know, ever uh, created. Uh, I just think that uh, this music will... Uh, just get to people more and make them realize the importance of, uh, of a, a God and believing in him and uh, living their life to the best way they can. Brian Whitcomb, 15-year-old composer. Some of us, being parents of teenagers, cannot escape the study of these people. Now, like Gifford is not yet engaged in that study. His children are not yet teenagers. So he went to a high school in New York City to explore some teenage attitudes. Well, Gifford learned one fact, all too familiar to fathers of teenage girls and boys. The feminine of the species is the quicker to mature. Here's more of what Gifford learned. 
What is a teenager? A teenager is a human being between the ages of 13 and 19. What else is he? That's all he is, as far as I'm concerned. And I, I, I think as far as anyone should be concerned. I mean, there's nothing special about a teenager. There's not, there are certain things unique to a teenager, just as there are certain things unique to every age group in society. But other than that, I, I think that people ought to sort of stop um, analyzing <laughs> teenagers, per se. Mm -hmm. Well, experimentation is what teenagers seem to dabble in, isn't it? I think experimentation is very healthy and very constructive in, for any person. I think the uh, teenager cannot be branded as such in that every teenager is an individual and we're always lumped together. And this isn't fair because somebody at 19 who still is classified as a teenager may be more mature than somebody at 25, who at 25 has the right to vote and decide what he wants the country to do. Now, is that fair? I think we're always blocked and we're looked down upon and we're considered children when adults consider it uh, convenient for us to be considered children. Why do you think these boys that uh, wear this long hair, why do you think they do it? They may do it for show or they made the in thing, or the out thing. You know, they're so out, they're in. You know, the new, the new crazy hip, the so-called hip, you know, and the mod fashions, and, the, and probably the greatest influence would probably be the British, uh, the, the new British singers and the new British actors. Why do they think they need to do this, though? Is there something deeper than that in it, do you suppose? Yeah. It's an, to be able to identify with everyone else, you know. You don't want to feel that you're just alone by yourself. Everyone's, everyone's the same, so you want to be with everyone else. I don't wear these, I don't wear those things because, uh, people just wear that because they want to impress everyone else, you know. They're not being by themselves, they're not being what they really are. And they wear long hair, most of the time they don't like the long hair. You get, really, you, when you're a teenager, you, if uh, you speak with a doctor or anyone, your face breaks out more often when you have long hair because of the oil. But, uh, I don't know, kids just like to identify with everyone else. And if they have the long hair, the way out fashion, they'll be able to identify with everyone else. It doesn't really bother me or impress me one way or the other. I mean, I really think that this whole, you know, uproar with what kids are wearing and how they're wearing their hair is very childish and ridiculous. I don't see what possible difference it could make in what progress they're going to make in school or any such thing. Well, why do they do it? Well, I think the whole uproar was not created by the kids, but rather by the parents and the, uh, let's say, the Board of Education itself, because they prohibit, uh, in some schools, kids to wear their hair long. And I think this itself sparks other kids to wear their hair long. I think it doesn't matter what, how you dress, because it's what's inside. It's your brains. If they're functioning correctly, that's actually what counts. Do you think these kids that wear their hair long have non-functioning brains? No, not at all. <laughs> you can't judge by, uh, by a person's hair how he thinks. How about these miniskirts which the girls wear? I think if a girl wants to wear a miniskirt, it's up to her. Myself, I think I don't agree with them. I think a certain length is good, but when you get to the microskirt, I think it becomes... Well, might as well wear shorts if you're going to wear a miniskirt. Doesn't the school board, though, have the right to tell you that, uh, that you can't wear this kind of clothing at schools? I think they have no right to tell us what we can wear or what we can't. If it happens to look good on a certain person, let them wear it. They happen to like it. You feel the school board doesn't have the right to tell you this? You said, for example, a moment ago, you might as well wear shorts, you know. Uh, right. Well, suppose you want to wear shorts. You should be allowed to. You should be allowed to wear whatever you want. But doesn't there have to be an ultimate authority in things like this? Well, I think there has to be an ultimate limit. I don't think people should be allowed to come in whatever they want. I mean, it could get very ridiculous. It could get very indecent. It could really become a distraction. It could get so that the kid doesn't learn as well wearing a certain thing. Well, then what you're saying, then, is the way things are now within the limits of decency, that there is too much authority from the top on teenagers. You mean on dress? Yeah, well, on, on, your, on your behavior, on your conduct, on... Yeah, uh, I think there is. Tell me more. How is there? Well, in, in the dress, in that I think girls should be allowed to wear pants. That's the first thing. I think 
I don't think school dress should be elaborate, just like kids don't come to school in evening gowns even though they wear skirts. I don't think that if they wore pants they should come in these lacy bell bottoms. It shouldn't be far out, it shouldn't be elaborate, it shouldn't be uncomfortable, but just to wear slacks in the same way that you would wear a skirt is, I think, fine. Do you think that teenagers are as religious perhaps as they ought to be, or is there more doubting among teenagers? Well, I think generally speaking there's more doubt in our age, just our, not only our particular generation or our particular age bracket, but just today in general, there's more doubt and there's more to doubt. <laughs> there's more to be, you know. I think so often, you know, we, if we're, you know, posed with the question of faith or, you know, belief, we've been, um, you know, had so much evidence and so much reason why we shouldn't have faith or shouldn't believe or shouldn't be optimistic, and um, I think um, a religion generally has a lot to do with, you know, what you've been taught, your parents, etc. And, um, but I think, if I may say so, religion is sort of on its way out. Uh, if you take a look at any generation, it just keeps, uh, you know, going, getting worse and worse. I mean, it just keeps breaking away from yeah, religion more and more. Word. And um, they're nobody uh, I could think of. I think it's a rebellion in certain ways of, you know, instead of having to go to church every Sunday no, and synagogue every Saturday, you're, you're breaking away, you're sort of, you know, fighting against all these ideas of the church and state, of the church and religion and all that. I don't think so much as a rebellion. I think it's just the more, the more advancement of the, uh, the ideas of the person who is thinking this way. I, personally, I, I've learned to doubt. Religion in a way is, to a certain point, I think is good. But to the point where it starts owning the person, instead of the person owning a religion and possessing it, where religion starts to possess a person, then it's no good. And I think the young people these days see and realize that something like, for instance, take something as, as nothing as the Crusades, which accomplished nothing but killed, pe killed many people. I mean, that was done in the name of a religion that despised killing. I mean, when you get to see that religion possesses people, we have to doubt. Most people want to see a visible proof before them. If you read in the Bible that some miracle occurred, you can't say, you know, I just believe that. You want to see proof that something happened there. And most of the religion today, it's just a, you know, uh, you have to have the faith and the, there's no proof that something happened. And I think that so many people are go, w going away from religion and the atheist or agnostic because they don't have proof before them that they can't see that it really happened, that there really was such events, like miracles. It, it's been shown that more people are attending church now on Sundays or whatever your religion is than has ever been before, that this has really increased. But I think that people don't take religion quite so seriously anymore. They're, they're not devoted to it in a way that people have been in the past. They don't go all out. They're not fanatic about it. They're sort of, well, you're not supposed to, but I will, and yeah, I'll go to church on Sunday. So there's, there's been more of a seemingly more religion in the country, but it's not, I don't think it's as serious, so that it's really less. I never had any religious upbringing, and I don't think I've, you know, regretted it or, or missed anything by it, but I think that there has to be um, a differentiation made between the dogma of religion and the morals of religion in that I think that today we, I have to make a generalization, that we have a moral group of teenagers, or at least my friends, the teenagers I have come in contact with, are extremely moral people as far as um, you know, war and peace and, and people and relationships goes. But I think that the dogma of religion is going out, and the, the law and the, um, you know, not straying from the flock, that's, you know, not applicable to our society and our lives anymore. You mean you kind of feel like this country, whether you're a member of the religious faith or not, is based on pretty much the moral standards of the Judaistic and the Christian faith? Well, I, I think that the moral standards are one and the same. I mean, the basic moral standards of, of all religion is basically the same. Should there be sex education in the schools? Well, yeah, it could, it could be shown, you know, uh, the whole thing is they do talk a little about it in hygiene. You take hygiene in the 11th grade, but they just graze the top. They don't go into anything uh, 
The whole thing is that there's so much kids don't actually, uh, and it's the truth, every kid thinks that they know everything, you know, that's uh, what's going on. But a lot of kids, they don't really know. You see, there's a lot of jokes about it, but this you can see that there's such a high rate of venereal disease that someone has to be taught what's happening. Sex education is certainly one of the most necessary things um, that should be contributed to the uh, curriculum in all schools. I mean, and starting, you know, in the elementary schools. I mean, this is something that's been so talked down and so, you know, it's been ignored too long. And I don't think it has anything to do with maturity. It's, it's, it's a function of life. When you have biology, you may come across a teacher who will teach you the fact when you're learning about reproduction of plant life. And then you go into animal life in low degrees. And then you will mature uh, into the higher stages of animal life. And one of the highest, uh, one of the most rewarding, uh, one of the rewarding moments of biology for me was when my teacher did go into the reproduction of the human. I think that it's the attitude that we have on, uh, on the uh, idea of whether sex education should be taught is very archaic. And I think if people were taught more, I think that they would understand this unnatural attitude. Everybody seems to have such an unnatural attitude about sex. I think some of this would maybe be dispelled and people would understand more about themselves and about why they feel the way they do. I think it has nothing to do with being mature. I think it's just that the parents don't want to uh, admit in some cases that they've failed with their, that they've failed with their children and, up, and bringing them up. They don't want to have to say that, I can't tell my children about sex, you have to do it. They don't want to admit to anyone else that they can't do this. All three of you gentlemen are at that point in life where you're just about to face the prospect of military service. How do you feel about it? Well, um, I, I always, uh, I don't know, thought of myself as being, you know, the type of guy who would, you know, like to go in there and be a big hero, you know, and, and shoot, you know, I, I'm not a sadistic or anything, I just, you know, like to go in there and, and, you know, fight sometimes, but when it comes down to reality, you know, I'll come out of my dream world, I, I really would be afraid, uh, I think, of going into the army. I feel, um, I, I see, I wonder, though, because I saw my parents, and my father and his friends, who, when war came, they went in and they enlisted, or they waited, they had no hesitation, and I, uh, I just wonder what, what's wrong with our generation. Well, what, what is wrong? I, I, I don't know. I think um, this, I really, I, really, I really don't know. I love my country, and I, I'd serve in the army. I have nothing against, I'm completely for the war, and I don't, I'm not for war, but I'm for what they're doing there. And the way I look at it is this, that the people who are against, who are, demonstrate in a way they're being very apathetic they don't realize that America is not right all the time but America for, for the citizens that it's done the best for its citizens and that it's in actuality in America you get more freedom than any country in the world and you have to pay the country in some respect I believe that a country has to raise an army that that, you, that, that you've been shown but and that at times a country may go to war a defensive war and I, and that's where that's where I live. If, even though I don't I don't believe in the present draft system, I don't believe in the war in Vietnam, I don't believe in the present federal administration. If I if I were to fight, say, in a defensive, which I deem defensive, which I, because it, it takes the individual to do what he wants, and I'd have to deem it as a defensive I, war. Then I would then I would immediately you know join up if I thought it was a defensive war. World War II, I think, was a defensive war. World War I was a defensive war. This is my opinion. All right, now what would you do? What do you do, though? How does a country get along if every citizen has the right to say, I'm not going to serve in the army because I don't well, like this war? Well, that's just You see, we aren't. Every individual is not allowed to say what he wants. I mean, you know, in the sense that it will actually do anything. You've had, you, this is the country where majority rules, and that's it. Is this wrong to take teenagers out of our society like that? I definitely think it's wrong. I mean, they haven't had a chance to live, to grow, to contribute. I mean, they're just laying down their lives for something they may not believe in. It's not really fair. Well, I agree. I, I don't believe in the draft, and I don't think that, uh, at any age, I don't think that you should lower the voting age to 18 and then say, okay, now they can vote, now they can kill, either. I think that at any age, it should be up to you whether you want to go to a war. Now, doesn't this get back to the question of a constituted authority? Shouldn't this country, I'm not saying they should, should this country have the right to pull our teenagers out and send them where they think they need to send them? No, no. And I, and I agreed before that uh, the authorities in this country 
are too oppressive. Of, of all the people, not just teenagers, it's not the teenagers have this corner on being suppressed. Well, teenagers, as you have heard, are easily identifiable. They are those who use the phrase, you know, at least three times in any given sentence. But while they may worry us by actions and words that appear brazen, I suppose we should be somewhat cheered that they speak so openly to us, you know? I will say, though, that it is disconcerting, to this adult at least, to hear teenagers speak so casually of being busted, as some of the Sunset Strip demonstrators did. Busted, up till now, has been a trade term used mostly by those accustomed to frequent excursions into police custody, criminals. It also shakes this parent to hear a teenage girl speak of bouncing a bus when she means that it was overturned and severely damaged. That takes a lot of bouncing. I don't know if the teenagers we have heard are typical. I doubt it. For I have yet to encounter any teenager who is self-appraised as typical, including four in my family. We can generalize about them, but I wonder if we can apply the generalization to the individual human beings they are. Are they so different from the teenagers we were? You bet your worries about them they are. As we were different when our parents worried about us. Today's teenagers live in a world different from the one in which we sought to attain or escape maturity. And our teenage world was different from the one which our parents enjoyed or endured. My main worry about the world today's teenagers will make when their turn comes is what we have done with or to the one that we are even now trying to administer and in which they must live with or in spite of our guidance.